What's up, everyone? Welcome to this week's episode of James Baldwin's America. I am your host, Jesse James. And today is a special day, not necessarily the day that you're listening to this, but the day that I record this on Sunday, August 2nd, happens to be James Baldwin's 96th birthday. And it's it's been pretty amazing to me to look at social media today and see the wide-ranging support and love people showing James Baldwin when just even a few years ago he was widely unknown to this generation, this current generation. But today, looking at social media, I saw people of all ages, celebrities, politicians, sports figures, former students of mine, fellow colleagues of mine, all paying tribute and respect to James Baldwin. And you can just see, although he's been dead for over 30 years, his impact is still great and wide ranging. People are using his works and his words to spur on action in America today. And it's really been quite inspiring to see so many people post tributes and say such heartfelt and meaningful things to and about Baldwin. And as somebody who has made Baldwin such a large part of his own life, it really does inspire me and give me hope that, hey, with so many people now following Baldwin's lead, maybe we're actually onto something as far as finding real change in this country. But with that being said, today's topic is not about James Baldwin's birthday. It is about a documentary made about him in 1989 called The Price of the Ticket. So right after this, we will get into talking about and reviewing the documentary, The Price of the Ticket. All right, back at it here on James Baldwin's America, talking today about the documentary, The Price of the Ticket. It was made by filmmaker Karen Thorson. Originally, while Karen was working with Baldwin, it was supposed to be a film about the writing of his next book. Unfortunately, as we know, Baldwin died in 1987, 
so she was unable to make that film. But the film that she did make was just as fascinating as anything else she probably could have made about Baldwin. She used archival footage to have Baldwin tell his life story in his own words. And the film opens up at his funeral. And you see in this church a huge gathering of people coming to honor Baldwin. And one of the first speakers that is highlighted at the church is Maya Angelou. And she said something to the effects that James had the courage to ask her to be her brother when at that time so many relationships were seen as sexual in nature, but that wasn't necessarily who Baldwin was. He was seeking people, like-minded people, to not only help him, but in turn, he helped them on their journey and on his journey to kind of fulfill this personal and professional ideology that they were always spurred by. We then leave the church scene and we begin talking and beginning to know about Baldwin as a youngster. He was the oldest of nine children, which meant he had to grow up and become responsible at a very young age and take care of all of his younger brothers and sisters. And most importantly, he had to, as he said, deal with daddy. His father was, his stepfather was an alcoholic, but was also heavily involved in the church as a preacher. And Baldwin often talked about having to deal with daddy and what that meant as far as abuse, not only mentally and verbally, but physically as well. And we see that Baldwin was driven to the church very early on in his life by not only his life, but his father, because the church was such a major part of him and of his family. And he talked about the language of the Bible and the church and how important that was to him and really beginning to shape the fundamental thoughts that would guide him for his entire life. And it led him to become a childhood preacher and by all accounts, a better preacher than his father ever was and someone that was able to captivate large audiences at a very young age. But James also knew at a very young age that the institution of the church itself could never accept him because of his homosexuality. So he knew long-term that he would have to leave the church and he would have to take his preaching and use that in a different way to reach others. We fast forward a little bit as Baldwin grew older and began reading and began 
his career as a writer, and he soon left the country in 1948 for France. And the most important thing early on that he noticed was the way the French treated Algerians in their country. He said it was very similar to how blacks were treated in America. Therefore, he identified with the Algerians and their struggle. And it gave him the freedom, the knowledge, the power to be able to write about his experience and fall back on how the French were treating the Algerians and juxtapose that with what was happening in America with African-Americans. He begins to talk about his first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain, which was a semi-autobiographical book. However, he was struggling with the language in the book to really bring to life the characters that he was writing about. And this is, as we've talked about in the past, and as I've said, we'll continue to talk about in in the future, music plays such an important and influential role in Baldwin's life. He was only able to finish Go Tell It on a Mountain after locking himself away and listening to records of Bessie Smith and Fats Waller. And those records gave him the language that he needed to finish the book. And of course, it became a huge success and is one of the first books that people read either on their own or if they take a class about Baldwin because you do begin to understand Baldwin as a young man so well because it was semi-autobiographical and you see this char- the main character coming of age and forming his own identity not only within himself, but within the church as well. So we move on to Baldwin's next major book called Giovanni's Room. And it happens to be my favorite book by Baldwin. Um, It's really so so often misunderstood what the book is really about so many reviews that you read about it. People talk about it being a book about homosexuality. And yes, there's talk of homosexuality in the book, but it's so much more than that. It's about one man's inability to love not only men, but women and what that inability to love does to a person and how it just tears a person apart from the inside out. And we can, by looking at that book, we can juxtapose that with white men in America at that time and even today and how the inability to love others around them 
tears them apart and how white men are so fearful of anything that they perceive to be different than them. And it really does start with their own ignorance that breeds a fear of the unknown and that fills them with hate and that hate eventually leads to destruction whether it's the destruction of black male and female bodies black institutions or white bodies that support african americans so we through this book we can understand and see although the book itself was set in france we can see in america what the inability to love can do to a person and how destructive it can be we then move on and you begin to see the closeness of jimmy with his brother david and how growing up jimmy took care of david but as james was an adult david really took care of james whether it be personally or professionally and he was always there for his brother so you see this deep brotherly love between the two and you can tell it's 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 the shared experience of brotherhood but it's also one brother david recognizing in james what he's doing to try and influence and reshape the world in a more positive manner and how david and eventually the rest of the baldwin family becomes very protective over james and not only him as a person but once he dies comes very protective over his legacy and how he's viewed and perceived which we'll get into further in upcoming episodes we're going to talk about the second half of the documentary including books another country blues for mr charlie and if beale street could talk we'll get into that right after this now depending on what day it is if i don't say giovanni's room is my favorite book by baldwin i would say another country is i just love the elements of jazz music worked into the first part of the book and then you see all the relationships developed throughout the book and it's just a fascinating look at the relationships not only between men and women but black and white as well and it's about it's about those relationships trying to grow and for people to love one another but as the book goes on you begin to see that the price of love is very powerful the price of love 
for a person is life. And you see that play out through one of the main characters. But you also see it play out through the entire book of people's inability to speak their truth. And in some cases, if they're able to speak their truth, they're only able to do it through excessive amounts of alcohol. And that's really one of the first things that most people notice about another country is just the obscene amounts of alcohol that some of these characters drink. And on the one hand, you understand it because it allows them to become their real selves. But on the other hand, you're reading and you look at this and you're like, these people aren't going to live very long lives with the torture and excessive amounts of alcohol that they're putting through their bodies. But nonetheless, it's a great look at people trying to find themselves and find love not only within themselves, but within others as well. And then the documentary moves to talking about relationships in America between blacks and whites. And if white people, if they're willing to give up their whiteness, and on the surface that seems funny because obviously you can't give up your skin color, but what you can give up is the idea that your skin color somehow makes you superior to other people. Because as Baldwin said many times, if you think you're white, that's going to cause to make me think that I'm black. He didn't use that word. We know the word that he used. And he would say, I'm not the N-word. So if I'm not that, then what are you? And it may be that one single question. Are white people willing to give up their whiteness? That really this country hinges on are white people willing to say the color of my skin does not matter which makes the color of somebody else's skin not matter and if you can do that if you can truly do it and you can't just say it you need to do it by your actions and the way you live your life if you're able to do that, then yes, maybe we can make progress in this country. But we see that it's not an easy thing to do. And that becomes highlighted in Blues for Mr. Charlie. And this play, it really is an early precursor of the Black Power movement. As you have the younger character coming back to the South from the North, and you can see he he has become very militant and very standoffish at 
his elders he is he's against the dr king character who is the reverend and the preacher and preaches nonviolence. he takes on the, who malcolm x was and the only way to fight violence is with violence and if the white man has guns that means the black man needs guns and you see at the end the Dr. King character is standing behind the pulpit. And on the pulpit, he has a copy of the Bible and he has a gun. And he says, one of these will work. And as we see that play forward in America, and as we talked about last week, with the death of John Lewis. John Lewis never turned to the gun. John Lewis always held the Bible firmly to his heart. So we begin to understand that maybe as angry as we are and as much as we think that the gun may bring about the change we want, really the only way that change is going to happen is through love and holding that Bible to our collective hearts. And as time moved on in the documentary and we got to the late 60s, and by that time we have the murders of Medgar Evers and Malcolm X and Dr. King and John and Robert Kennedy, the rise of black power has taken place and there begins to become a backlash against Baldwin questioning not only his blackness, but his masculinity because the idea of black power asserts a very strong male dominating presence. And that just personally wasn't who Baldwin was, at least in the way that those in the black power movement saw it. So he began to lose credibility in the eyes of those that began to take leadership positions. And it once again drove Baldwin from the country only to have his writing continue and be just as revolutionary and cutting edge as it ever was. And that book comes in the form of If Beale Street Could Talk. If you haven't seen the movie, I would suggest going to see it or renting it. It's a phenomenal piece of work. The book is just as good, if not better. As I said, it was written after Baldwin left America again. It's really could be could be seen as a post-revolutionary novel as you have these characters dealing with the aftermath of the civil rights movement and as life sort of began to become normal again on a day-to-day -day basis. But you really see something that is so prevalent now in America and you see the relationship between black folks in the inner city and their relationship to police and how that relationship is one-sided 
how that relationship is destructive and so brutal and so destructive and one-sided. So that began to make people think that Baldwin was becoming a bitter, angry old man. And not only did he stand up against that thought, but those that knew him best stood up against that and said, he wasn't bitter. He was angry. He was enraged. He was sick and tired of seeing time and time again black men in this and women in this country persecuted and beaten and killed for no reason at all. Baldwin also said that I can't speak to the human experience if I'm bitter because your judgment becomes clouded. But you can speak to it being enraged and angry. And so then we come to the end of the documentary, which once again brings us to the funeral scene. And the closing out of the funeral scene, you hear African drums, which again, this tie into music is so important to Baldwin, but it's so important to the relationship he had with music and the way music enables all of us to feel deeper and understand deeper, not only in this country, but around the world. I've said it before on this podcast, but the makers of this film, Karen Thorson, Douglas Dempsey, I'm friends with them. Um, when I was in graduate school, I actually contacted them and was able to bring the documentary to my school, which was a very proud moment for me. And I think this is the best documentary ever done about Baldwin. I would highly recommend it to everybody to go out of your way to see it. And you really will get a deeper understanding of James Baldwin, not only the writer, but the person, as well as understanding the importance of family and music in his life. So we have one more segment this week. We're going to talk about the songs of the week as well as the Baldwin quote of the week and a preview to next week's episode. So we'll be right back with that. As a reminder, before I get to the songs and quote of the week, that you can follow and give the show a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash James Baldwin's America or on Twitter at James underscore Baldwin's. You can email the show with thoughts or questions at baldwins.america at gmail.com. And please rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. And please leave a five-star rating. So the first song of the week is actually a remake of a song done in 2006. The song is Looking for a Leader 2020. It's by Neil Young, 
And as I said, it's a remake of his 2006 version of the song that originally took on President George W. Bush. Young now turns his lyrics towards President Trump. It is amusing, delightful, and it's a song that is absolutely needed for our current times. The second song is I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free by Nina Simone off her 1967 album Silk and Soul. I, for those that know me, I absolutely love Nina Simone. She is one of my two or three favorite singers of all time. Her voice is both beautiful and haunting at the same time. It's powerful yet vulnerable. She commands a room like very few others can. And in this song, you hear her pain and her hope and also the struggle that she's dealing with through her voice. And it's, to me, it's absolutely beautiful and one of my favorite songs done by her. By her. The quote of the week comes from Baldwin's 1963 essay talk to teachers in which he said the paradox of education is precisely this that as one begins to become conscious one begins to examine the society in which he is being educated i love that quote it's so fundamentally important to the work that i do with baldwin and it's one of the first quotes I share with either students or people that are new to Baldwin to really make them think about their own past and what they've learned and what they've been taught about not only themselves, but this country and how this country tricks us into believing a certain narrative about its history when that narrative is completely false. I think with next week's episode, I'd like to share with you the work that I've done regarding Baldwin, the work that I did for my master's thesis and show you how I feel studying Baldwin and using him as a foundation for education in this country can bring about long lasting and huge change. So with that, I thank you again for tuning in. I look forward to talking with you again next week. Take care of yourself and each other. One love to everyone. And I will talk to you next week. Peace. Thank you.